سيدنا نبينا ومولانا محمد Surah Safat, Surah 37, Ayah 167. Alhamdulillahirrahmanirrahim. These ayats speak to the stubbornness of those who received the message from the prophets that when they would have no recourse except to become stubborn, they would make these stubborn statements. And um, they who deny your prophethood, they would indeed say. What would they say? Meaning invariably they would say, لو had with us the reminder of those who came before us. If only we had the same instructions and if only we had the same guidance and the same message of those who came before us. Indeed, we would have been from the sincere servants of Allah who came very stubborn and very crude in the defense of not believing in the truth. This is after the prophets came and delivered the message. And this is after the prophet ﷺ came to the Quraysh, delivered his message. And also after the Quran was repeatedly being repeated in front of them, they would make this claim that we haven't received the message of people who came before us. We don't know what this message is, but this message doesn't seem to resonate with us, and we want some further guidance on this matter, and so on. What you have brought to us is not enough, and it's not of the caliber of the dhikr, the mention, uh, and the message of those who came before us. Obviously, it's so stubbornness, and there's nothing there in their claim or in their statement which is worth refuting, which is what, why the Qur'an doesn't. فَكَفَرُوا بِهِ So now what do they do? They disbelieve in it totally. And soon they will see whether or not the message was enough. So this is how human beings behave. When they are in a corner and they don't have any rational explanation to their rejection and to their denial that they defend themselves as perhaps a mouse might defend itself when it's cornered. Yeah. So this is the only way uh, they could come out of that conversation.
but then uh, they're already surrounded by their own rejection and also the contempt of the one who gives the message that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So he says, فَسُوفَ يَعْلَمُونَ Soon they will see whether or not they have been warned and guided and so on. And this is to reassure the Prophet وَلَقَدْ سَبَقَتْ كَلِمَتُنَا لِعِبَادِنَا الْمُرْسَلِينَ إِنَّهُمْ لَهُمُ الْمَنْصُورُونَ وَإِنَّ جُنْدَنَا لَهُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ This is a statement for all prophets anyone who was sent as a messenger they are privy to this glad tiding that indeed our words have preceded, preceded uh, our servants who are sent. Mm. Yeah. Meaning that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has already written this decree. Uh, what is that? Innahum lahumul mansurun. That indeed they will be the victors. They will be the ones who are helped. Not necessarily victors, but the ones who will be assisted and helped. Yeah. This is written for all prophets and all four messengers that uh, they will indeed all the time be helped and assisted by the divine in their mission and in their quest to deliver their message. And indeed it will be our armies. Jund means armies. Our armies will then be the ones who will be the victorious and triumphant and so on. So this series of this series of ayat poses a problem. And the problem is that certain Ambiya and certain Mursaloon were killed and assassinated. And how can then you say that they were victorious or they were the ones who were assisted and so on. So that is when you don't understand hmm, the reality of human existence. Hmm. So the Quran speaks about existence as a totality. So the first words hmm, in this sequence is وَلَقَدْ سَبَقَتْ كَلِمَتُنَا Meaning that our words have overtaken and they have been pre-recorded. So this is referring to existence before man. Right? And then when man comes into existence, he has several phases through which he goes until he reaches his destination. So they have the world of the spirits and the arwah and then the mother's womb and this world then the barzakh, then the mahshar, where the day of judgment occurs, and then the issue of jannah. Right. Yeah. So if you consider that timeline, or human beings' continuum, you will see that this, uh, the, the, this uh, promise is for the overall uh, victory of our servants. Yeah, in any time or place where man exists. 
you understand what I'm saying? That this promise to messengers that they will be helped and assisted is for uh, is for us when we include every phase of man's existence, not just this world. So if someone is now already promised Jannah, then he is victorious. Because the ultimate destiny of man should be where? Jannah. If Allah has promised all the Anbiya Jannah, then this ayah is perfectly correct. That they will be helped and assisted in reaching their final destination, which is Jannah. But if you limit the scope of this ayah to this world, then you're confining wahi. You're not something you want to do. <laughs> wahi is expanded over time. So wahi includes everything. So from before time, sabaqat karimatuna, that's before time. That even before man existed, we had already recorded and decreed this. Our words preceded them. And then the end of time and after time, where there is Jannah. So Allah is saying that we will eventually make sure that they end up where? In Jannah. And that is the ultimate success. The Quran says, and that is the greatest of triumphs that a human being is allowed to enter Jannah. So in that sense, this ayah makes perfect sense. Okay. So this is how you will reconcile that. But there's obviously other interpretations and so on. The point of a Nabi being assassinated is now also in favor of the Nabi because assassination in Islam means that you are a shaheed and shahada is not a loss in Islam. Shahada is a gain in Islam. As the Quran says, you, you can't say that the shuhada or dead don't call the shaheed a dead man. He's very much alive. So he's giving a life after a life. So, so in that sense, the shaheed from the anbiya, they're also victorious because they have tasted shahada and martyrdom. So they are successful. Meaning that Allah's word has preceded them meaning that their lives are now endorsed and their lives are now secured forever that they have been given this eternal life because they were killed in the path of Allah and they were assassinated. So that's the other thing. So when we read the seerah of the four khulafa, we cannot say that the lives of the four khulafa were in waste because three of them were assassinated. That's not how you read uh, the history of the Sahaba. History of the Sahaba is that they're all victorious, meaning that they received shahada and they did not die because we can't say that a shaheed dies. By us, by the Quran, you can't say that a shaheed dies. Mm. So now we say that they were triumphant and victorious because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserved their lives by giving them eternal life through assassination. So that is not a failure. If you restrict your commentary to the affairs of this world, then obviously you're going to say as a historian uh, that he was assassinated and he failed. But if you are a Muslim thinker, you'll say he didn't fail. 
he became a shaheed, which is the ultimate triumph for a Muslim. Right? Yeah, so the ultimate triumph for a Muslim is that a Muslim is now given Jannah in this world. Yeah. That this is how we see the role of a shaheed. So we see that our four khulafa were very victorious. They served their, uh, their deen and they served people and they also received blessings from Allah by becoming martyrs in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is the ultimate triumph for the four khulafa. That's how you would reconcile. So reading the history of the Sahaba is slightly different from reading the history of other people and other generations. You must look at them through the lens of Aqeedah. What is our Aqeedah vis-a-vis Umar and Uthman Ali? That all three of them were shuhada, that they were martyrs. And that's how you see them as successful human beings. وَإِنَّ جُنْدَنَا لَهُمُ الْغَالِبُونَ Indeed, our hordes and our troops and our armies are the ones who are successful and overwhelming. And this is meaning the angels who now were there. They came to help and assist. So when you are fighting for a true cause, and a cause that is from Allah and from the Prophet ﷺ, as with the Sahaba, then your ultimate destiny is going to be there through the assistance of the angels and the angels are there to help you reach your destination. Yeah. So now what you must do is you must turn away from them for a moment. Turn away from them, ignore them, leave them be and do whatever you need to do in order to worship Allah and seek comfort from Allah himself directly. So leave them for a while, for a while, because then we'll deal with them. Um, And then observe them from a distance, because soon they will see who is now victorious and who is not uh, victorious. Is it our punishment they are seeking to expedite? Are they expediting our punishment by saying, bring the punishment on? Show us signs from the heavens that you are a true Nabi and a true Prophet. So here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taunting the kuffar by saying that, are you really serious that you want punishment to come upon you? يَسْتَعْجِلُونَ فَإِذَا نَزَلَ بِسَاحَتِهِمْ and the truth is that when Allah's punishment comes upon uh, their courtyards, then the mourning of those who are warned becomes very evil. Mm. The Quran is depicting that the mourning is evil. Mm. Meaning whatever the mourning brings with it in the form of punishment is going to be very severe and very strict. And when the punishment comes to the doorstep, uh, sabah, or what is this? فَإِذَا نَزَلَ بِسَاحَةٍ Usually means the courtyard and the, 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 yeah, by the door, the footsteps, 
of the door. So this is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that the punishment is already above you. It's already with you. And the reason why you are seeking to expedite the punishment is because you are feeling it. You're sensing that the punishment is coming. That's why you're calling for it. It's a psychological phenomenon. That you're seeing danger is imminent and you're feeling it, but you're now feeling it out of rejection and denial, not out of acceptance and tawbah and forgiveness, asking for forgiveness and so on. So that's where the evil comes in. So now your actions will lead you to a very evil morning because that's when Allah's punishment usually comes, in the morning. Yeah. And then you must turn away from them for a while. So when you turn away from them, you will not be privy to the punishment. So it is usually a rule that when a punishment is coming, the Nabi must not be present. And the Nabi must not observe Allah's punishment as it comes down. Because if you do that, you will become punished yourself. As in the case of the wife of Lut, that she turned around and she witnessed the punishment and she was punished also. She stayed behind. So you don't want to see Allah's punishment. It's not something you want to see. Meaning that watch them but don't look at them. Because when they are looking at the punishment, they are punished. And you mustn't look at people who are being punished because your eyes should not fall on Allah's punishment. It's not something you want to witness. So a Nabi must not witness Allah's punishment as a rule. Mm. This is how it has been with the previous Anbiya, except when you're physically fighting them meaning you in jihad and you're physically fighting them as in Badr, as in Ahad, as in Khandaq, then obviously because you're in the battlefield, the battlefield justifies that you look at them. Obviously because you're engaged. But if you're not in the battlefield, then the punishment must come behind you, behind your back where you are not privy to witnessing that divine order. So the divine order must be protected. Um, in this sense that it must not fall upon the eyes of a Nabi. So you must now stay away from them. Stay away from them for a while so that if punishment is to come, you must not see and observe the punishment. And then you must see and observe without seeing and observing. Indeed, soon they will see how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala works and how he handles people who do not believe in his order. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is now uh, the, the idea that Allah sends punishment to people is real. It's not fake, it's not fantasy, it's not a myth. And the benefits of that is that you are now in tune with reality totally. And you're not, um, you're not uh, trying to um, diminish reality and say there's only one part of reality which is good. And you don't want to see the other part of reality which is not so good. So you have the overall, overall holistic comprehensive 
understanding and observation of reality, the haq, which comes down upon the heavens and the earth and the cosmos and all of that. So it's a meaning absir. So you observe reality in totality. They will observe reality as it comes down in the form of punishment, but you must observe absir reality in its totality. So there will be good times for you and there are going to be bad times for them. If you don't have this observation, then you are myopic. The idea nowadays, you know, why are you talking about Allah's punishment? It's going to happen. <laughs> why are you talking about Jahannam? Because it exists. Is that why you say, Nar haqqun, in aqeedah, the nar, the fire is haqq, it's the truth, it is real. That's why I talk about it. If you go to the doctors and doctors say cancer, why talk about cancer? Because it's there. You can't tell the doctor why are you talking about something that's evil and bad. Baba is right there. Right? So when you see reality as a whole, then you have to take Jahannam into consideration as a reality, as a fact. And if it's there as a fact, then you must speak about it. If you don't speak about it, how are you going to prepare for it? So the idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given you news and information about a reality that does exist in the other world is a rahmah. It's a mercy. But he's showing you that it's what's going to happen if this happens here, you know, that's going to happen there. So the way you don't end up there is by making sure you don't do what it takes to get there in this world. And that is how Sharia works. You can't hide something that's real under the rug. Shove it under, under the rug and say, oh, we're not supposed to talk about that. But why not? You talk about everything. If you don't go to work, what's going to happen to you? You're going to be on the streets. So why are you saying that you're going to be on the streets? Why? Our children should not know that they'll be on the streets. Well, that's what's going to happen if they don't work. It's a reality of life. So what, what here, the Qur'an is saying, وَأَبْصِرْ to the Prophet Observe. What are you observing? You're observing the haqq, the truth, the absolute reality. And the absolute reality includes Jahannam and Jannah. Both, not just one. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's names and attributes will reflect both types of his attributes, those that are very, very beautiful and honorable and loving and caring and forgiving. At the same time, they will also reflect his majesty, his dominance, his being the one who can punish if he wants to. So in Islam, our theology and theism is based on a total reality of the haqq, not a partial observation of the haqq where other theologies and theisms will only reflect one part of the haqq, which is myopic, incomplete. That's why that's the false deen. And this is the true deen. In the true deen, you have the total reality of the haqq, who is both this way and that way, because that's the way he is. Right? Do you want him to be that way? No, nobody wants him to. Nobody wants Allah to punish. That's why the message is there. What is the message? The message is that we don't want Allah to punish you. Therefore, you must not do this so that the punishment doesn't come. So now people, unfortunately, they're warped 
uh, and they're, they're, they're kind of twisted in their minds and they become very, very peevish and childish and they say, why are you talking about you know, threats and punishment and fire and this and that? That's not the message we want to hear. It may not be the message you want to hear, but it's the message that works. Fear, as you know, is a great motivator. <laughs> as I said, if you don't work, you'll be out on the streets. That's fear, and that should motivate you. If it doesn't, then you're a real loser. Oh. Yeah. Observe. Observe what? Everything that Allah creates. Your total observation of a total reality. And that is how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises a prophet. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yasifun. Subhana. Glory is your, glorified is your Lord. Subhana is a word you only use for Allah. You cannot use it for anyone else. So it is now going to be, as you see here, mudaf. It's going to be uh, assessed towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhana rabbika. Your Lord is very much above and he is totally uh, glorified from anything and everything that they describe him with. Amma yusifun, from that which they describe him. So if they describe him incompletely, then he is above that. And if they describe him with deficiencies and uh, saying that he has a son or he has daughters, then that is, oh, he's also above that. Any kind of description that goes against the meaning of a deity, meaning Allah subhanahu he is above that. So he says, Subhana Rabbika, your Lord, the one that raises you, and the one that takes care of you, and the one that is now training you to become the best person, he is high above all of those uh, associations and misrepresentations. So he is your Lord. But your Lord is Rabbil Izzah, the Lord of might, the Lord of incredible might and power, Rabbil Izzah. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to the power that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has to the Prophet وسلم, that Allah's might and power is going to overrule anything that they want to do, and that is proven in the seerah of the Prophet وسلم, at Badr and in other places where Allah's might and power came to destroy the enemies and eventually Allah's might and power came to enact the conquest of Makkah, the conquering of Makkah, the victory Allah subhanahu gave to the Prophet when he entered Makkah without any fight and without any bloodshed. That is his power, Rabbul Izzah the one of immense power and might. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying to the Prophet وسلم, you must now seek his assistance through his izza, through his power and through his might. And never mind about what they say and what they do. So eventually Allah's power comes into the life of a Nabi and the Nabi through Allah's power is able to do uh, whatever Allah wants him to do and he's able to execute Allah's command in a very, very easy way. Right? So it's with ease that you have this ability uh, to implement the Sharia, 
it is not with force and violence that you do this. So the Prophet ruled and governed Medina with great ease. There is no coercion there. Because the Sahaba, not only did they simply acquiesce or resign or uh, submit to the authority of the Prophet it, it became part of who they are and who they wanted to be. They saw that it was not just necessary, but is they, is, is what, what is, is what they wanted. It is out of hub and mahabba. Okay, so that mahabba brings in the izza, the power. If you seek izza and power without mahabba, then you'll be a tyrant. So if you don't have love in your followers, then obviously you rule ruthlessly and you'll be a tyrant. So the best way to rule is to make sure people love you. <laughs> right? So the Sahaba loved the process. So ruling them was a piece of cake. No? So that's the testimony to the power Allah gave to the Prophet in his personality, in his charisma. That Allah gave the Prophet so much charisma and he was such a magnet for the Sahaba that they said, whatever you say, whatever you say goes. Right? So they saw him as the final authority. They didn't receive wahi. The Prophet received wahi. So everything the Prophet said <coughs> or requested or suggested or indicated was seen as something that the Sahaba wanted themselves, for themselves. So there was no coercion and there was no kind of enforcement, uh, legal enforcement of that nation. Those who fought the Prophet were seen as renegades and apostates, uh, impostors. Yeah? So that's how the Sahaba saw others. If anybody came and dared question the Prophet they would immediately take that person to task and say, what are you doing? So they were built this way. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is that Allah's izza, Allah's might and power, comes into the world through an institution of prophethood, and that is Muhammad And that prophethood, all it does is that it brings about a certain security and a certain peace. That's why the next ayah says, وَسَلَامٌ peace meaning it is with peace and love that Allah's rule is executed it is not out of coercion or dissension or out of force there has to be salam in the community in order for Allah's word to be implemented so Muslims if they want Allah's word to be implemented they have to find some way to inject love for Allah and His Rasul and the Quran and Sunnah instead of being violent about it. Oh. Violence won't get you very far, as you know. So that's how you turn the tables. So salam is a word and a code of behavior. It's also a code of governance. That is why this will be the statement in Jannah. Salamun qawlam mir rabbir rahim. It's the same salam. And this salam on earth will be translated into salam in Jannah. So in Jannah there will be only salam, there will be security, 
there'll be no coercion and there'll be no uh, derision and there'll be nothing there that you can say is going to harm or hurt people. People in Jannah will live in a very peaceful environment. It will be sober, it will be serene, and it will be full of peace. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will continuously announce in Jannah, Salamun qawlam mir rabbi rahim. A statement from Allah, Salam. So that Salam is not represented on earth through the institution of a Nabi. Salam on earth does not come without a Nabi. If there's no Nabi on the planet, there's no Salam, period. This is what is meant by Salamun ala al-Mursaleen or Wasalamun ala al-Mursaleen and Salam be upon those who are sent as messengers, meaning it is through the institution of a messenger that Salam comes to people. So that is now the proof in the pudding. Did the Prophet وسلم, execute Salam in the Sahaba? Yes. They loved each other. They cared for, cared for each other. They defended each other. And they did everything for each other because they cared for the Prophet وسلم, and they defended him and they loved him. So this is the Salam Al Mursaleen. So the Salam Al Mursaleen is a code. That this code is only going to be executed if there's a Nabi. You remove the Nabi, there's no Salam. No matter what kind of civilization you have, no kind of what, what kind of justice system you have, no, doesn't matter what kind of legal system you have. MashaAllah, in this country we have a legal system it's supposedly based on human rights. We know the problems that come with it, right? Every day there's some kind of discrimination against people, which is absolutely absurd. There's so much violence in the country. It's just not the legal system. You need something greater than the legal system, and that is called the Nabi. The Nabi is greater than the system. Yeah, the Rasul is greater than the system. The system comes because of the Nabi, not the other way around. So the Nabi generates the Salam. If you are not able to generate Salam, you will not have an order, you will not have a system. On paper it looks nice. There's no prejudice, there's no bias, there's no discrimination. Everybody is equal uh, in the eyes of the law. Blah, blah, blah. You have it. Huh? It looks grand on paper. But the execution of that is not possible without Nabuwa. You need a link to the Nabi. So when early Muslims ruled, it was because of their link to the Nabi that they were able to execute the Salam. And wherever they went, they had Salam. The people who were uh, now being ruled by others would come to the Sahaba running and say, we want you to rule us. We don't want them to rule us. Right. A group of people, uh, Khalid bin Walid, was recalled by the <coughs> Khalifa in Medina, and uh, the Khalifa in Medina uh, told him to, to, to give back the jizya to a few villages. The jizya is protection money. He said, give them back the jizya because you can no longer uh, defend them or protect them. So as he was leaving, they all came. People of the villages came to Khalid. 
Don't go. We want you to rule us. We don't care about the jizya. You can take everything. Don't go. Because you bring peace to us. You understand what I'm saying? So, Salamun ala al-Mursaleen is not just a statement in the Quran that you read as part of your theology. It's an actual uh, actualization of Allah's salam and peace on earth. And that peace on earth can only be through the institution of Nabuwa and prophethood and risala. That is where the peace comes from. Now, invariably, with every human system, you're going to have human frailties and the human fallibility and the human mistakes. That's going to happen. That's because of the human factor, not because of the system. Okay? The most perfect human being who is Muhammad when he was there in Medina physically, there were no problems. There were no deficiencies. Everybody was happy. Everybody was uh, peace and so on. Afterwards, the Khulafa did whatever they did, but as Muslim history is there to testify, uh, they had their problems and issues. But eventually they were victorious in the sense that they implemented the law at the expense of their lives. That's why they became Shaheed. So Omar was there because of some grudge somebody had for implementing a law the guy didn't like, so he killed him. Uthman was there because he implemented the rule that you do not give up ownership of the Khilafah just because people want you to give up ownership of Khilafah. So he implemented the law. Ali radiallahu was assassinated by the same type of people. So they were there because they implemented, executed the Salam process and they were willing to die for it. And that is the height of now success as a ruler, as a governor, that you live and die by the code you want to execute. That's pure success. So this is what it means. Salamun ala al-mursaleen wa salamun ala al-mursaleen. And peace be upon all the messengers, meaning every messenger brought with him this peace that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted him to represent on earth. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. And all praise is due to Allah who is the Lord of the worlds. That in Islam... <coughs> We always have a favorable opinion about Allah. We start the recitation of the Quran by saying Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. That is a positive indicator that what you're about to read in this Quran is all positive in the sense that you'll be praising Allah. There's nothing negative here. So praise obviously is a positive value and we want the people who read the Qur'an to make sure they have a positive attitude and approach to the recitation and also to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala himself that he is worthy of praise just because he is. Alhamdulillah means Allah is worthy of praise because he is. That's how we see Allah. We don't see Allah in a negative light. Uh, we don't see Allah in any other light except that which is good. So we have a good opinion about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why? Because he is Rabbil Alameen. So that's the claim. Alhamdulillah is the claim. Rabbil Alameen is the proof to substantiate the claim. Allah is worthy of praise. Why? Because he is the Lord of the worlds. Not just this world. 
Again, you can't confine Islam and the Quran and Sharia to this world. Otherwise, you're going to become myopic and you're going to distort it invariably. You must include all the worlds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the Lord of all the worlds. The world of the malaika, the angels, the world of the jinns, the world that preceded this world, the mother's womb, and the world that preceded that one, the world of the arwah, and the souls, and then the barzakh, and then the mahshar, and then jannah and jahannam. He is the Lord of all the worlds. And when someone is the Lord of all the worlds, he can only be good. Because he's, he's now uh, keeping the order in those worlds afloat and he is allowing those worlds to uh, be in existence and he is providing for everything in those worlds as a Lord, as someone who is taking care of them. So in whichever realm of existence you want to place yourself in as a human being, Allah is there as the Rabb of that world, as a Lord of the realm where he establishes the rules for engagement in that world. Okay? So in this world, you have rules of engagement, cause and effect, uh, this and that. In the Barzakh, there are rules of engagement. In the world before us, before our time, the world of Arwah, there are rules of engagement and so on. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has provided rules of engagement in each world, and each world functions independently of others, and they work also in harmony with each other, both. It's paradoxical. This is how Allah now is the supreme creator and the su supreme uh, being who keeps everything in order. Uh, and that is why you have to worship him, because he provides order. If you don't worship him, then there will be no order. So you have to see Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as your Lord. Also, but in the world where you exist. Right? So when we ask a question in the grave, what will the question be? What are the wordings? Is it man Allah? Who is Allah? No. What will it be? It'll be man rabbuka. Who is your Lord? It won't be who is God. The question will be, who is your Lord? Why? Because Allah is the Lord of all worlds. He was your Lord in the world you just came from. And he is your Lord in this world. So you'll have to say Allah. If you realize that. But if you don't realize it, you'll be saying, oh, wait a minute. I don't know. <laughs> who is my Lord? Right? So Rabb is, is a huge sifa of Allah. It's the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The sifa being the rububiyyah. And we, we seek Allah's Rahmah because of His being our Lord. He is our Rabb. So whichever plane of existence we are in, we must believe Allah is the Lord of this plane of existence. And He controls the affairs. And He has already predestined the rules of engagement in this world. And that is how we get to the uh, idea of the Surah uh, that Allah has placed angels where they belong. Each angel is afforded a position, a maqam, a status, and they work from that position, and they, they do whatever Allah wants them to do. So he is the Lord of the world of angels. Also, so the one who is the Lord of the world of angels, 
is going to be the same one who is the Lord of this world where you're now engaging with your own actions and with Allah's sifat, Allah's names and attributes and you're engaging with the forces of the world, the forces of the angels, the forces of the devils and the forces of the jinn and so on. So this surah uh, informs us <coughs> that every world has an order and then the world of prophets uh, has an order also. The world of the Anbiya and the world of the Mursaloon, they have their order and they have their rules of engagement and so on, inshallah. Uh, with this we will conclude, inshallah, the tafsir this year, uh, this semester, we will reconvene sometime in August, inshallah. But we do have a program for you next week, Sunday at 6.45 here. You're all welcome join us then. Jazakumullah khair. Subhanallah alhamdulillah. Subhanallah alhamdulillah. Nashadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka. Subhanallah.